Good morning, Covenants. We come to the end of the liturgical year today. It ends not with a whimper, but rather with a bang, because today is Christ the King Sunday. It happens just one time a year on the Sunday that is right before the beginning of Advent, which is officially the beginning of the church calendar, the beginning of the church year. Advent being that four-week period where we make our hearts ready to welcome the Christ child. The idea of Christ the King may feel foreign foreign or even for some uncomfortable. We Americans famously threw off the rule of a king and created a new form of government. We associate a king with privilege, unchecked authority, extravagance, and vast wealth. We imagine a king who is separate and away from the people who rules by royal edict. This sounds nothing at all like Jesus. But remember, Jesus was not what the world expected, and he ushered in a radically different kingdom than was anticipated. This morning we turn to the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, one of the most well-known and well-loved stories in all of Scripture. Something inside us loves an underdog. We cheer for the long shot. We root for the little guy, which keeps making me think about Auburn every time we say that. We Celebrate the upset, Rocky Balboa versus Apollo Creed and the Cinderella teams that that come forward, that bubble up every year during March Madness. The story appeals to all of us, really, because no matter how big we are, we all find ourselves in situations where we are in a vulnerable position with someone who is in a position of power, whether that's a bully out on the playground, or a parent, or a boss at work, or a political leader. The story of David and Goliath is not a typical text for Christ the King. However, I was reminded of its goodness recently as I was sharing the story of David and Goliath with about 63, 4, and 5-year-olds in Covenant's preschool chapel a week and a half ago. Today's scripture introduces us to the first words recorded by David in the Bible, the same David who will eventually be, become the greatest king in all of Israel's history. He reigned a thousand years before the time of Jesus, the Messiah, who will come from the lineage of David. A bit of context, since we have not spent any time recently, in quite some time, in the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel covers a significant political change, a great amount of time of significant political change. The nation had asked for and been given a king, King Saul. The primary reason the Israelites asked for a king was so that their king could go out and fight their battles and provide security. The people felt a need for a king because of the very chronic nature of threats from a variety of enemies. And one of the most persistent threats came from the Philistines, who more than anyone else really threatened Israel's way of life. Let's now step into the story. David, young David, arrives to the scene as a a naive outsider. He's able to see and hear what is going 
on the the Philistines are on one side, the Israelite army on the other. There's a valley between them, and war cries are splitting the sky. 1 Samuel 17, beginning with verse 20. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle. Army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Goth, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the Israelites, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. The Israelites said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. His eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? It was only a question. He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for David. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> oh God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts and minds, may it all be <clears throat> acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, show us again the beauty and power of your rule. Amen. <clears throat> I'd like to invite us to sit for a moment here at the beginning of the sermon with the notion of kings. We have a true king, a king above all kings. There is a king behind all, all kings. The basic theme in the great epic novel, The Lord of the Rings, is that there is a true king, but that he's hidden in the north. When he shows up, everyone will be healed. The actual record of kings is abysmal. It's a record populated by tyranny, tragedy, and slavery. Almost every monarchy has been toppled and put into its place. Democracy, in spite of that, we remain fascinated with kings and queens. In countries with some sort of royal line, people are obsessed with the royalty. With Harry and Meghan's recent marriage and pregnancy, for example, we watch and we wait for the 
newest piece of news regarding the royal baby, baby bump and any other news available to us about the youngest royals. In America, we take athletes, billionaires, and media stars, and we crown them. They hold court. We adore them. Why do we constantly give ourselves over to kings? Why do we have a need to create and to crown them? The reason is we were built for a king. We need a king. Tim Keller explains there is a memory trace in the human race of a great king, an ancient king who ruled with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. We were built to submit to that king, to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. That's what the Bible says. The Bible also says if you reject the true king, you will find a king. You will find someone to adore. You will find saviors. It's the desire to have someone sweep you off your feet romantically and be your king. It's the belief that if we could just get the right political party into the White House, then we will be saved. A false king. Friends, the message of Christianity is that there is one true king, the Lord's anointed one, Jesus, our king. Yet, humanity's dominant worldview tends to resonate more with the concluding lines of the poem of Victus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. How frequently are we tempted to believe that we are in control of our destiny? That it's all up to us. That I am the crucial factor, my courage, my will, my charming personality, my accomplishments, my successes. That I am in charge and that I am ultimately, ultimately the master of my life and the hero of my story. David, young David, he understands that he is not the hero of the story. What has shaped that? Let's consider for a moment and try to get inside David's head. We all live by so many narratives that drive us and shape who we are. With him, with all of us, are the voices that we carry from our parents. David included. With him is the voice of his father, Jesse. David is the eighth son of Jesse that we, we learned this earlier in chapter 17. He's obediently bringing grain and bread to his three older brothers who are there in Saul's army. He's off to, off also bringing cheese to the commander. We learned that earlier in the chapter two. Likely his dad has instructed him to be careful. He is also to bring back news about the mission, carrying expectations from his father. The voice of his eldest brother, Eliab, is in his head. This encounter is easy to imagine. Firstborn, ultra-responsible, Eliab accuses his little brother of abandoning his responsibility with the sheep. He accuses him of boyish voyeurism, showing up just to gawk 
at the battle, David is not put off like all little brothers. He essentially says, who asked you? And then he goes to find someone else to answer the question that he wants to be answered. The closest to us, those who know us best, often are, or sometimes at least, some of the most critical and belittling voices and narratives that we carry with us for many years. Goliath begins his daily rant just as David arrives to the scene. Surely Davis is hearing the anger and the meanness within his being as he listens to Goliath. Surely that taunt is ringing in his ears. He sees the fear on the faces of the Israelite army. The response around him everywhere he looks is fear and retreat. David has multiple voices in his head from others. He could be lured by a desire to please the king and to impress the soldiers. The criticism of his brother might cause him to shrink. Friends, I wonder if you are able to identify the anxiety-driven voices currently that you carry in your being that have been put upon you from others. Malcolm Gladwell's best-selling book, Blink, explores the topic of decision-making and the manners by which we arrive at certain decisions. We are decision-making creatures. It is part of being created in the image of God. But the problem is, is that we don't always know why we make certain decisions or how to learn to make better ones in the future. One of the main premises of Gladwell's book is that we can make better decisions by cutting out the clutter and learning to focus on the right information. He points to data overload and how it causes our brains to shut down and make rash decisions just to make a decision. It's what happens anytime you go to the Cheesecake Factory and have to order off their 20-page plus menu. An intriguing concept from Blink is the idea of thin slicing. This is Gladwell's term for the ability to make a rapid judgment on a small amount of data. The ability to make a rapid judgment on a small amount of data. It's the ability to zero in on what really matters. One important way to seek wisdom is to have the right kind of people around you to help you to make the best decisions. The practice of real community, people supporting each other, learning and growing and working together as we grow in Christ's way, which is, enables us to make better decisions. In some ways, David has been training for this moment his whole life long. David is not as inexperienced as the king might think. Lions and bears have come and tried to devour the sheep, and he has had to strike down those wild animals in order to protect the flock. David hears the challenge in a different way than everyone else. He hears the challenge like a shepherd. He then fights like who he is, like a shepherd. David trusted in the God who had delivered him before as he fought wild animals and trusted that God would be faithful to him again. He was a person of prayer and had an ongoing conversation with God as he tended sheep 
is God faithful? Thankfully, David wasn't trying to answer that question for the first time as he saw Goliath. In the Valley of Elah, David demonstrates his ability to thin slice, to zero in on what really matters when he assesses the situation and asks, doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? For up to now, everyone had been dealing with what they felt was a military problem. It was the young David who raises a theological issue. David introduces a new factor in the action, the living God. David introduces and reveals a whole new worldview. He clearly sees what the rest of Israel does not see, that the fact that there is a living God makes a difference in all of this. And it opens up powerful and unexpected resources for life. Israel is acting as if God is irrelevant to the battle. A living God gives a whole new view on things. As Pastor and Eugene Peterson notes, the only person fully in touch with reality that day in the valley was David. Reality is mostly made up of what we cannot see. The human life is mostly a matter of what never gets reported in the papers. Only a God-saturated, as opposed to a Goliath-saturated mind, can account for what made holy history in that day in the Valley of Eli. It's the belief that if God is for us, then who can be against us? We've heard the voices of criticism, bullying, and fear. David provides the voice of faith. Is there a living God in Israel? Is there a working power and a governance outside the scope of armies? David is prepared to act as if it were so. How about us? With whatever obstacle you now face or will face, friends, can you trust that the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, that he is not dormant but continues to act for he is forever the living God? My family has a New Year's Eve tradition. We go to a restaurant and after ordering dinner while awaiting our meal, we take turns going around the table one by one, reflecting on the prior year. We've done this almost 15 years together. We'll be doing this again in Florida in a little over five weeks. We celebrate victories and travel and experiences, new hobbies and renewed discipline. We lament loss. We talk about transitions to new jobs, new schools, new homes. We've highlighted marching band and starting school and getting a driver's license and the thrill of having your braces finally off. We had years of celebrating with joy, mom being free from cancer, and then years together journeying side by side after mom's cancer had returned. One year, two family members stayed at the table and did the hard work of forgiveness with each other while the rest of us were in the bathroom. There have been hurricanes, death of pets, and a surgically repaired heart. Last Christmas, my sister was worried that she would lose her job in the new year, and my nephew shared that he had had a a pretty hard and somewhat lonely start to college. 
And then each New Year's Eve, year after year, in our different ways, we marvel at how God has provided for each of us in unmistakable ways. It's a family tradition we look forward to. It's a spiritual practice for us, really, although none of us would call that to be true. Memory kindles hope. Scripture tells us that we are a forgetful people and encourages us to have really good memories. There is something about my family ritual that helps us, helps me to remember God's faithfulness and to affirm that our God is mighty to save. As we look back at God's faithfulness in the past, it helps me to believe that God will not abandon me or those I love with our tomorrows. It helps me to be able to say yes to the question that a living God makes a difference in all of this. We are drawn to David in this story. However, the truth is that we are much more like the Israelites cowering in the corner in fear because we can't face the giant on our own. We can't beat our enemies. We need a David to stand in our place and to defeat our enemies. We need a king. Thankfully, friends, we have a king, Jesus, our king, who has conquered sin and death, who died that we might live abundant and eternal life, who ascended and now sits on the right hand of God the Father. From there he shall come to judge the quick in the dead. And we now have an advocate that was sent from the Father, the Spirit of the living God, who advocates for us every day of our lives. Does having a living God make a difference in all of this? Back to that recent experience of sharing this particular story with preschoolers, three, four, and five-year-olds over in Covenant's Chapel. At the end of the story, when I shared that the hero of the story is not David, as we sometimes are prone to believe to be true, that, but rather that the hero of the story is God, many of those little preschool kids threw up their little hands in the air and celebrated with great delight. That is Christ the King. It's Christ the King Sunday. We celebrate and we give thanks that we have a king who fights our battles for us. And we surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to the rule and the reign of God. Friends, we need a king. We are built for a king. We are built to adore and to serve and to know this king, which will be part of our Advent journey together as we are invited, all of us, to be creative, to look for ways to be intentional to encounter Christ the King. On this final day of the Christian year, the church is prompted to praise God for God's great faithfulness, to claim God's promises, and to proclaim the blessings of God's rule for the whole earth. It's a day of rejoicing and feasting, of tasting and delighting in God's promises. Christ is King. Oh, come, let us Adore him, which is what we now do together as we come to this table that is about tasting and feasting and delighting in the living God. Friends, we, all of us, 
myself included, we can be, we can be really prone to going through the motions of our faith. God longs to meet us at this table. He longs for us to have an encounter, a true encounter with the living God and not just to come forward and to take bread and juice casually, but to come with hopeful expectation that we are going to encounter the Lord of the universe and the hope of this world, the reigning and ruling God in this meal. I wonder if today we might come forward with holy expectation for that encounter, not only for ourselves, but for those beside us as well. As God promises to nourish and feed our faith in this meal, as we remember together, so many years ago, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And later on, during that same meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. Drink from this, all of you. For every time we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we remember and we proclaim something, which is the saving death of Jesus Christ until he comes again, and come again he shall to make all things right the gifts of God for each of us to nourish us for the journey ahead with this new church year. Those who are serving would invite you to come forward and let's all of the rest of us, whenever you are ready, come forward to have your faith fed and nourished.